Welcome to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast, where each week we bring you selected content from the magazine for your encouragement and edification. This week's two selections are from issue 273 of the Banner of Truth magazine, published in June 1986. The first of them, simply entitled Freemasonry, is the text of a sermon by A.W. Rainsbury. The sermon was preached in Mr. Rainsbury's own pulpit of Emmanuel Church, South Croydon, London, in 1959, and was subsequently issued as a booklet. Before we read the sermon, however, let us consult the editorial note, which appeared at the beginning of that issue of the magazine. It is regrettable that when, last year, there was widespread public discussion on Freemasonry, a sermon issued as a booklet on the subject by the late Reverend A.W. Rainsbury was no longer available. We reprint it in this issue, for the subject remains one of widespread importance. The Methodist Church in the UK last year warned its members that there is a great danger that the Christian who becomes a Freemason will find himself compromising his Christian beliefs or his allegiance to Christ. Correspondence which appeared in the Times confirmed Mr. Rainsbury's assertion that the Church of England as a whole is riddled with Freemasonry. The Masonic Order numbers more than six million, and many of these members belong to churches. David Yallop's book, In God's Name, An Investigation into the Murder of Pope John Paul I, Corky Books, 1984, speaks of over 100 Masons, ranging from cardinals to priests, within the Vatican, and he argues that it was the late Pope's intention of curbing their power which led to his death in 1978. We do not doubt that some true but poorly taught Christians may for a time be involved in Freemasonry. The institution as such, however, said to date from fraternities of English and Scottish stonemasons and cathedral builders in the Middle Ages, should never be viewed as a harmless ally of Christianity. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 This is the centenary year of the 1859 revival. Accordingly, I have chosen as the main theme of our Lenten sermons the subject of revivals of religion. This is a positive subject, but, as I once heard Bishop Taylor say, every positive carries a corresponding negative. It is impossible fairly to consider revivals of religion without considering also its negative, perversions of religion. Tonight we are considering Freemasonry, under that title. I will give you three reasons for selecting Freemasonry. 1. Because there are a number of young men in this church who are eligible for membership. I feel that they should be forewarned of the danger confronting them. 2. Because there are members of this church who are already Freemasons. I can only hope that they are so because they have never seen the religious implications of their position or they would resign from the lodge at once. 3. Because the Church of England as a whole is riddled from top to bottom with Freemasonry, 
and I consider it to be one of the most enervating and damaging influences with which we have to contend today, and one which may largely account for the lack of spiritual leadership and lack of doctrinal discrimination from which we are suffering so acutely. Now, you may ask, how is it that so many honourable and respected gentlemen find their way into Freemasonry? I ask myself the same question. 1. I think that many are attracted by the high moral ideals which the craft seeks to promote – benevolence, brotherhood, tolerance, etc. 2. Many by the philanthropic institutions – Masonic schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and the benevolent fund. 3. Others by the air of mystery which surrounds the craft, and the love of exclusivism. 4. Others by the social side, the dressing up, the ceremonial, and the festivities. 5. Yet others by the sense of comradeship. I will not say fellowship, for fellowship can only exist between Christians. 6. Some may regard it as a business asset. Masons will hotly deny this and point out that it is unmasonic to use masonry to promote business ends, and that they are required to swear on initiation that they are uninfluenced by mercenary or other unworthy motives. Nevertheless, as Vindex points out in Light Visible, a book written in defense of Freemasonry, in certain circumstances Masons are under oath to favor each other. The second point of the five points of fellowship in the third-degree obligation includes an undertaking to support a brother Mason in all his laudable undertakings. This is capable of wide interpretation, very wide interpretation, and receives it. I must now tell you some of the many Christian objections that there are to Freemasonry. The first Christian objection to Freemasonry is that secret societies are unscriptural. Jesus Christ did not found a secret society. On the contrary, he said, John 18.20, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. That cannot be said of the Freemasons, who prefer concealed light, closely shaded windows, a guarded door, and terrible oaths of secrecy. Matthew 10, 26-27 There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Freemasons, do you preach upon the housetops what you hear in the ear in your Masonic lodges? If not, why not? The second Christian objection to Freemasonry is to the undertaking of rash promises. One of the proposed canons in the Canon Law Revision of the Church of England, 69a, included a clause requiring ministers to subscribe to canons as they have been or shall hereafter be passed. It was rightly stigmatized the immoral canon, for it required a man to promise obedience in advance to unknown laws. It had to be dropped. But the very structure of the different degrees of Freemasonry rests upon such immoral promises. 
For in one degree after another, a man is required to bind himself in advance by a solemn oath on the Bible to secrecy and faithfulness in matters of which nothing is revealed to him previously. It is true that the worshipful master says to the candidate, Let me assure you that in these vows there is nothing incompatible with your civil, moral, or religious duties. The man has got to sell his conscience to the worshipful master before he can proceed. But what right has any man to make another the custodian of his conscience? This is to make man his God. He must accept the judgment of a man who may not even be a Christian on religious issues. Alas, some have found much that was incompatible with their Christian convictions and fled the lodge. Many others have also found things that were incompatible, but they have stayed and seared their consciences. Or if a soul swear, pronouncing with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatsoever it be that a man shall pronounce with an oath, and it be hid from him, when he knoweth it, then he shall be guilty in one of these. And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin which he hath sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. Leviticus 5, 4-6 The third Christian objection to Freemasonry is to the really monstrous Masonic oaths. Jesus said, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Matthew 5, 33-37 With these words in mind, listen now to these oaths, extracted from a man kneeling on his knees with one hand resting on the Bible. These several points I solemnly swear to observe without equivocation or mental reservation of any kind, under no less a penalty on the violation of any of them than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by the root, and buried in the sand of the sea, or the more effective punishment of being branded as a willfully perjured individual, void of all moral worth and totally unfit, to be received into this worshipful lodge. On being raised to the second degree, he likewise swears on bended knees with his hand on the Bible, These several points I solemnly swear to observe without evasion, equivocation, or mental reservation of any kind, under no lesser penalty on the violation of any of them than that of having my left breast laid open, my heart torn therefrom, and given to the ravenous birds of the air, or devouring beasts of the field as a prey. So help me, Almighty God, and keep me steadfast in this my solemn obligation of a fellow craftsman Mason. 
On being raised to the third degree, he takes a similar oath and accepts the penalty on the violation of any of his undertakings, which includes that of obeying all summonses sent from the master's lodge, which may explain why some can find time for the lodge meeting, but little time for church meetings. A penalty of being severed in two, my body burned to ashes, and those ashes scattered over the face of the earth. On becoming a royal arch companion, again on his knees and with his hand on the Bible, he cements his undertakings. Under no less a penalty, on the violation of any of them, than that of suffering loss of life by having my head struck off. But I say unto you, swear not at all, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You know now where the Masonic oaths come from, don't you? Every one of them from the devil. Jesus says so. The fourth Christian objection to Freemasonry is its exclusion of the Lord Jesus Christ from its precincts. That this is a fact no honest Freemason can deny. The precious name of Jesus Christ is not allowed even to be uttered in a Masonic Lodge. There is so-called worship in the Masonic Lodge, but from that worship Jesus Christ is deliberately excluded. There is so-called prayer in the Masonic Lodge, but it is not offered in the name of Jesus Christ, through whom alone prayer is acceptable to God. His name is deliberately excluded, even from prayers where it is normally found. There is so-called praise in the Masonic Lodge, but the precious name of Jesus is excised from every hymn. How can any Christian Mason offer such an insult to the one who hung upon the cross to save his precious soul? Jesus, and shall it ever be, a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee, whom angels praise, whose glories shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend, no, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, yes I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. The place where Jesus Christ is not allowed is no place for a Christian. The fifth Christian objection to Freemasonry is that it rests upon a false doctrine of justification by works. Freemasonry makes much of its emphasis on morality, character building, etc. It defines itself, in the second degree ceremony, as a peculiar system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. There it is, on its own definition, a system of morality. But what is the foundation of the system? For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus Christ, has been cast out of the Masonic temple. Ah, but men who exclude Jesus Christ must try to find some other foundation. The Freemason's foundation is himself, his own self-effort, with the help of the great architect of the universe. 
The newly admitted candidate is told by the worshipful master, It is customary, at the erection of all stately and superb edifices, to lay the first foundation stone at the northeast corner of the building. You, being newly admitted into masonry, are placed at the northeast part of the lodge, figuratively to represent that stone. And from the foundation, lay this evening, may you raise a superstructure, perfect in its parts and honorable to the builder. Man himself is the foundation stone. If you are still in doubt that Freemasonry rests upon the false doctrine of justification by works, listen to this from the worshipful master's charge after initiation. Indeed, no institution can boast a more solid foundation than that on which Freemasonry rests, the practice of every moral and social virtue. More solid than Jesus Christ agrees the Christian Freemason. If you are still in doubt that Freemasonry rests upon the false doctrine of justification by works, listen to this extract from the Explanation of the First Degree Tracing Board. The way by which we, as Masons, hope to arrive there, i.e. heaven, is by the assistance of a ladder, in scripture called Jacob's Ladder. It is composed of many staves or rounds, which point out as many moral virtues, but three principal ones, which are faith, hope, and charity. Faith in the great architect of the universe, hope in salvation, and to be in charity with all men. But the Mason's hope in salvation is nil, because, Acts 4.11, the stone which was set at naught of you builders is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the Freemason has, ipso facto, rejected that foundation. As for the Freemason's hope, or anybody else's hope, of climbing up the stairs of their moral virtues into heaven, I commend to your careful study Articles 11, 12, and 13, which are the best summary I know of the teaching of Scripture on the subject of justification. And just a note here that Rainsbury is referring here to the 39 articles of the Church of England. Article 11 gives us the true and only ground of justification. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Article 13 shows how repugnant to God are all works, including Masonic works, which are not the direct fruit of such a living personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Works done before the grace of Christ are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not out of faith in Jesus Christ, yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. So you see, your very morality, this peculiar system of morality, which you define Freemasonry to be, is itself sin, because it does not spring out of a living faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour, Lord, and God. My Masonic friends, it is not up the steps of your Jacob's Ladder that you need to climb, 
But it's down the steps of your own self-sufficiency, your own self-effort, and your own self-righteousness. Down, down, down to the foot of the cross, where Jesus bore your sins, there to sue for mercy and forgiveness by the merits of the blood which was shed that you might be saved. The sixth and last Christian objection to Freemasonry, which I have time to mention, is that it is an apostate religion. Now, sometimes Freemasons deny that Freemasonry is a religion at all. But let me remind you of the following facts. 1. It has its own meeting places, which are called temples. 2. It has its own hymns, which exclude the name of Christ. 3. It has its own prayers, which exclude the name of Christ. 4. It has its own chaplains, who also obligingly exclude the name of Christ. 5. It has its own theology, which is enshrined in the workings and lectures and charges of the lodges. It is not Christian theology, but a universalistic religion, which is based on the ancient mystery cults. Having first proved that Freemasonry has all the essential hallmarks of a religion, Sir John Cockburn, past Grand Deacon of England and past Deputy Grand Master of Australia, adds, If the title of religion be denied to Freemasonry, it may well claim the higher title of a federation of religions. It is a form of worship in which all religions can unite without sacrificing a jot of their respective creeds. Is the Lord Jesus Christ less than a jot, then, to the Christian Freemason? Further, it claims to impart a moral and spiritual light which shines nowhere else. It also claims the exclusive possession of certain truths, one of which is the sacred and mysterious name of God. And the name of its God? The climax of worship and ritual is to introduce the initiate to the sacred name, for that name is supposed to have been lost, and to be known only to Freemasons who are members of the so-called Holy Royal Arch. Their name for God you will not recognize, unless you are a Mason, for it is not in your Bible. It is Jabulon, a pagan, syncretistic name for God. Walter Hanna says, this word is explained in the mystical lecture as consisting of certain titles or attributes of divinity to which in English no one could take exception. Yet this word is made up, as also explained, of the Hebrew Yahweh coupled with the Assyrian Baal, so utterly repugnant to the prophets even as a symbol, and the Egyptian On, or Osiris. Osiris was the corn god of Egypt. He was claimed to be the offspring of an unholy alliance between the earth god Keb and the sky goddess Nut. Oh, what a blasphemous insult to the High and Holy One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, to associate His holy name, even symbolically, with such foul names as these. Yet this Freemasons have the temerity to do. Even an acknowledged Masonic authority Albert Clark, was so disgusted with the introduction of this word that he wrote, No man or body of men can make me accept as a sacred word, as a symbol of the infinite and eternal Godhead, a mongrel word, 
in part composed of the name of an accursed and beastly heathen god, whose name has been for more than two thousand years an appellation of the devil. And this is the crowning revelation of Freemasonry. Should we rather say the crowning blasphemy? Some may feel inclined to challenge my facts and ask me where I got my information. I got it from various sources, but mainly from Walton Hanna's Darkness Visible. This book is based on three sources of information. One, authentic Masonic publishers. Two, Masonic commentaries, periodicals, ceremonial guides and lectures. Three, published disclosures by men who regard oaths made on false pretenses as null and void. One such man is a personal acquaintance of mine, Dr. D. R. Denman, a man whose spiritual judgment I value. In a published review of this book, Life of Faith, October 15, 1952, he writes, The greatest obstacle confronting his, i.e. Walton Hanna's, challenge, he admits, is the argument that the ritual cannot be understood or rightly interpreted outside the context and atmosphere in which it is worked. He deals with the difficulty with considerable dexterity and for the unbiased, disposes of it. In point of fact, the context and atmosphere of the lodge at work in no way contradict what is plain on the face of the liturgies. This I can affirm, for unlike Mr. Hannah, I have been a Mason. My experience enables me to appraise his book and to claim it as in every way worthy. The conclusion he arrives at is unassailable. Christ and the craft of Freemasonry are fundamentally opposed to each other. Dr. Denman continues, Well I remember the wave of nausea as I stood an initiate outside a Masonic lodge and heard myself referred to as a poor candidate in a state of darkness who by God's help was seeking the light. God's grace had already shone in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This I knew, and as I stood there listening to the first utterance of Masonic ritual, I was aware of rampant evil. In vain I sought for some acknowledgement of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, in the worship and ritual of the degree that followed. There was nothing. The sense of blasphemy had become, by the middle of the third degree ceremony, so overwhelming that I was moved to protest and to leave the temple, never to return. Christian Mason, go and do thou likewise. Uncommitted young man, these things have I said unto you concerning those who would lead you astray. Christian people, pray that our church and country may be purged from this mongrel religion, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our second selection this week also appeared in the June 1986 edition of the Banner magazine and was taken from the book Personal Reminiscences of the Life and Times of Gardener Spring. About 40 years ago, there was a man living on the corner of William and Spruce Streets in New York 
who was dying of consumption. His family worshipped in the brick church. His wife was an exemplary Christian. He himself was a prominent member of the Society of Freemasons and rarely, if ever, worshipped anywhere. For obvious reasons, I withhold his name, but in this narrative, designate him as Mr. B. I did not know of his illness, though I then resided in Beekman Street and but a single block from his residence. I was made acquainted with his character and condition by his wife, who requested me to visit him under cover of a pastoral visit to the family. She told me he was a universalist and spoke of the brick church as Brimstone Corner and its pastor as the Hellfire Preacher. She did not wish me to inquire for her husband, lest he should refuse to see me, but she could not consent to his going out of the world without seeing his awful delusion. I went, and so far as I now recollect, went the next day. I was received courteously by Mrs. B in the ordinary sitting room, and adjoining which and on the same floor was this dying man. The door of his room was open, and as I was conversing cheerfully with Mrs. B, the hollow cough of the sick man led me to remark that I perceived some of her family were sick. Yes, sir, she said, my husband is very ill. He has been a long time confined to the house with consumption, and now he is for the most part confined to his bed. I expressed a regret that I had not known it earlier, more especially as he was so near to me that I could, with very little inconvenience, have seen him often. Perhaps he will be glad to see you now, sir. I will ask him. She returned and invited me into his sick room. He received me kindly, and I could not but perceive that his hourglass was nearly run out. I was embarrassed. I did not think it wise to attack his principles, lest I should excite his hostility by provoking an unprofitable controversy. I merely said to him, I am sorry to see you so very ill, sir. Yes, I am very ill, and have been so for a long time, he said. Do you suffer much, I said? No, not a great deal, except from weakness and this racking cough. It keeps me awake at night. And you get no relief and have no hopes of recovery, I said. His poor wife was listening with amazing interest, and he replied with a stolid indifference, No, not much. I do not expect to recover. I was embarrassed no longer, and I said to him, Is it indeed so, that you are going soon to die, and stand before God in judgment? If I judge your case aright, that hour is not afar distant. I hope, my dear sir, you are prepared for it. With most perfect coolness, he replied, I am ready. I am satisfied my Maker will never send any of his creatures to hell. He wills not that any should perish. I never think of hell torments. I do not believe a word of it. I replied, it is well to be satisfied at such an hour as this. We cannot trifle with God, nor with death, nor with eternity, nor may a man trifle with himself without peril to his soul. He made no answer, but listened with prodigious interest. I remarked that I was sorry to see that he had adopted the delusion of the Universalists. And now, said I, do you really believe it? Yes, I do, was his prompt answer. Are you satisfied with it? Are you sure it is true? I do not ask whether you wish it were true, nor whether you hope it's true, but are you sure it is true? The opinions of men are very apt to be influenced by their wishes. 
They shrink from the thought of everlasting retribution, and therefore they will not believe it. Wicked as it is, they often carry their delusion to the bed of death. But my dear sir, what motive have you to practice this delusion upon yourself at this late hour? You may have been honest in your views of this solemn subject in the season of health and prosperity. All I ask is that you should be honest now in this season of debility and tribulation. Do you now believe the doctrine of universal salvation to be true? And are you sure of it? I perceive that these suggestions troubled him. He was pale and agitated. His steady, firm tone had forsaken him. His lips quivered, and there was a convulsive motion of his face that alarmed me. Oh, said he, all bathed in tears and clasping his hands together. Oh, sir, I am not sure of it. I am not sure of it. He wept. Mrs. B wept, and for a brief moment we were all silent. Whether I prayed with him or not, I cannot now affirm. I left him with his own thoughts, resolving to see him soon, and not without hope that the word of God would become quick and powerful. There was no time to lose. He'd been the victim of a popular delusion that was making havoc of the souls of men. His refuge failed him, his time was short, and I hastened to his bedside on a second visit. He made me welcome, and though I rejoiced in the opportunity, much did I wish that some more wise and experienced counsellor could conduct the interview. I do not wish to alarm you, Mr. B, but I thought you would be willing to indulge me with a short interview this morning. Sir, I am glad to see you. Sit here by me and say what you please. You will not offend me. I have given up my universalism and know that I am a great sinner. I have sat under the sound of that old church bell and have ridiculed it and despised the Sabbath. I have been a scoffer and an ungodly man. I have not strong hopes now. Indeed, I have none at all. Instead of being sure that I shall be saved, it seems to me that I must be lost and that I deserve to be damned. It may be you have not seen the worst of it yet. Your universalism is not your only sin, I said. There is wickedness that lies deeper than that. It is your corrupt and wicked heart that was the root of your universalism and that led you to cherish your hostility to God's injustice. I know it, I've seen it, he said, and feel condemned. This is my last call, is there no hope for me? I said, I am glad you feel condemned, and I dare not say that there is any hope for you if you die out of Christ and neglecting the great salvation. Listen to me a moment. You are condemned, and as a condemned sinner you lie at the footstool of sovereign mercy. God's holy law condemns you. You have cast that law behind your back, but you now feel the force of it, and it brings with it a knowledge of your sins and a sense of your guilt and danger. He said, I once thought the law of God a severe law, and that he was a hard master. I justified myself and complained of God, but I was wrong. God is perfectly right. I was among the bold opposers of all religion and thought it hard that God should damn men for breaking his law. But I was all wrong. God is perfectly right. I said, you are right in this. Both the precept and the penalty of the law are just. Conscience feels like this when the commandment comes home. The hearts of wicked men rise against it. They hate God and they hate his law but he shows them and makes them feel that the law is holy, just and good. 
Now, my suffering friend, if you see these things to be so and feel them, do you not perceive more clearly than ever, not only that all your past hopes are perished, but that you have no imaginary goodness on which you can rely, no righteousness of your own in which you can trust? He said, Indeed I do. I have been all wrong. Everything, thoughts, words, actions, all wrong. Words. Oh, how many wicked words have I spoken. It is all sin, nothing but sin. I have no righteousness. It is all sin. I have no hope from what I've done, nor from what I can do. Truly, I feel embarrassed. I do not know where to go, nor which way to turn. I am cut off from every retreat. It seems to me I am actually going to hell, and that there is but a step between me and the everlasting burnings which I have so derided. I said to him, I know, sir, there is nothing you will ever do that will prevent your going there. But have you never heard that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost? That when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly? O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. Remember the thief on the cross. I know you are lost, but you are not lost beyond recovery. God's Spirit is inviting you to take refuge in Christ. The Crucified One is saying to you, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You need pardon, and he died, the just in the place of the unjust, that he might dispense it. You need righteousness, and he was made sin for us, that we might be made righteousness of God in him. Do not despair, my dying friend. There is balm in Gilead. I have no expectation that you will live a week. Behold, now is the accepted time. You have no security for a single day. And oh, that it may be said, this day is salvation come to this house. After prayer, I left him, but saw him on the following day. He was near his end, but he was calm. He could speak but little, but expressed his hope in Christ. I had not much confidence in deathbed conversions, but I dare not suggest a thought that would obscure his hope. One circumstance at the closing interview encouraged me. He requested me to attend his funeral, intimated that his universalist friends would be there, and desired me to tell them from him that he had become fully convinced that the universalist doctrine was false, and that while it would do very well to live by, it would not do to die by. I engaged to do so, told him that, God helping me, I would publish his recantation to the world. I accordingly attended his funeral, which was very large, composed of various characters and some hard-visaged men. It was a Freemason's funeral, and as we stood round the vault in the northeast angle of the old cemetery, the chaplain of the lodge read their appointed burial service and closed with the memorable words, So mote it be. The whole proceeding was sufficiently ridiculous, absolutely unmeaning, and in my judgment not far from impious. I did not interrupt it, but abiding my time, felt nerved for an unembarrassed and bold deliverance of God's truth. I begged the attention of the audience, as I had a message from the deceased which he'd requested me to deliver to them over his grave, and which I had promised to deliver. There he lies, but being dead he yet speaketh. He did not die a universalist, 
but in the full belief of the gospel which proclaims to every creature, He that believeth shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. He wished me to say to you that he had no confidence in the soul-destroying doctrine that all men would be saved. It is a soul-destroying doctrine, my friends, and it is nothing else than the devil's lie. It is the worst form of infidelity and the most subtle and alarming delusion of the age. It is the great deceiver's gospel, and before you are aware of it will conduct you to the world of despair. As I proceeded and with increased fervour, I perceived a confusion and hustling in the crowd and heard the words, Damn him! Out of the ruling elders of the brick church, the late Richard Cunningham, who from the first stood near me, took my hand and said, Don't be afraid, dear. They are chained. Go on. I went on and was again assailed with the imprecation, Go to hell. Gentlemen, I am glad that you've changed your minds, I said. I perceive that you now believe there is a hell, else you would not tell me to go there. And when you say damn him, I perceive that you no longer deny that there is a damning God in heaven. So your departed brother believed, but that he believed also in him who is the saviour of the lost. I will not reciprocate your imprecation and say to you, go to hell but rather pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ may be with you all. Amen. I have seen universalists and infidels die, and during a ministry of 55 years, I have not found a single instance of peace and joy in their near views of eternity. No, nothing but an accusing conscience and the terrors of apprehension. I have seen men die who were men of a mercurial temperament, men of pleasure and fun, men of taste and literature, lovers of the opera and the theatre rather than the house of God, and I never saw an instance in which such persons died in peace. They died as they lived. Life was a blank, and death the king of terrors, a wasted life, an undone eternity. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.